Welcome to the Mind and Matter Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Chris Kenobi. Chris is a physician by training. He went to the University of Colorado for medical school and spent many years as an ophthalmologist. For the last few years, though, he's been focused mostly on uh, research and education on diet, nutrition, and metabolic health. And he's done a lot of public speaking on this. He's got some really good YouTube lectures. He's also the author, the co-author of the book, The Ancestral Diet Revolution, How Vegetable Oils and Processed Foods Destroy Our Health. And I talked with Chris about seed oils or vegetable oils, uh, what those are, the types of fatty acids they contain called omega-6 fatty acids, such as linoleic acid. We talked about what these things do in our body, how they're processed, how they compare to other types of fats, how they can be uh, oxidized and lead to things like inflammation and oxidative damage in the body. We talked about the foods that contain high levels of omega-6 fatty acids, uh, focusing mainly on seed oils. So these are uh, industrial seed oils, things like soybean oil, things like corn oil, sunflower oil, and so forth. And we talked about how their fat content differs from other vegetable oils and all of the things that Chris believes these seed oils contribute to or are major drivers of. And that includes things like obesity, diabetes, various other chronic inflammatory conditions. Uh, he talked about how uh, our bodies store up these uh, fatty acids in our fat, in the cell membranes of our cells. He talked about how long it takes to actually uh, for your body to actually get rid of these fatty acids if you stop eating them so much. We talked about why they're so common in processed foods and why they weren't very common in the ancestral state of humans. So when we were hunter-gatherers uh, eating traditional diets out in the wilderness, basically, uh, we consumed very, very low levels of omega-6 fatty acids compared to what we consume today. We consume a lot of these. Um, they've been going up and up and up in our diet for well over 100 years now. And so we talked about all of the health consequences of that. And I think this is a really interesting episode that really helps you uh, understand how and why you might want to avoid processed foods and things that contain high levels of these fatty acids. As always, uh, don't forget to check out my Substack, mindandmatter.substack.com. I've got a bunch of written content there, including a written series I'm doing about metabolic health related to uh, the content in this episode and some recent episodes I've done. I've got a free weekly newsletter where I provide updates on the podcast, like who's going to be on next, as well as a lot of uh, research that I share, things that I'm reading, new studies that have come out, um, all to do with the topics that I like to cover on the show. And so I really appreciate uh, subscriptions there. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it or you can put it into a smoothie or or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure. And vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system, 
system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Chris Kenobi. Yeah, sure. Um, Nick, so I'm a traditionally trained physician and ophthalmologist. um, And I really got into this out of my own suffering. Um, Started with arthritis way back, oh, 30 years ago. And um, that eventually led me about 12, 13 years ago to... um, uh, to investigate that and um, try not to go into too much detail here, but um, so I, really, I guess the uh, my arthritis led me to Lauren Cordain's book, The Paleo Answer. And from that, I determined that um, basically processed foods, refined flour, sugars, and vegetable oils were driving most all of the chronic diseases. And, and so, but there were things about Cordain's work that I didn't really agree with, didn't understand. And I just kept researching. And eventually a couple of years later, I came across the work of Weston Price um, and really began to connect the dots between processed foods and, and chronic disease in a deeper way that made more sense to me. And, that year, Nick, then I um, hypothesized that uh, processed foods and vegetable oils, sugars, refined flours, all that might be driving age-related macular degeneration. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an ophthalmologist. Um, age-related macular degeneration, or AMD, is the leading cause of irreversible vision loss and blindness in people over the age of 50 worldwide. Mm-hmm. So I spent about a year and a half or maybe almost two years investigating that while I was still in practice. And in February of 2015, I was so convinced that that hypothesis held water that I left practice and pursued that full time. Mm-hmm. And um, so that took about another year and a half of, of investigation. Basically, from that, we, you know, we uh, we looked at. Uh, data of processed food consumption, tracking proxy markers for processed food in the form of sugars and vegetable oils. And the data in 25 nations supported that hypothesis. So I went public with that in 2016, published a paper, published a book, started a nonprofit foundation. And, but eventually, you know, um, the, I, I kept researching all of this. And the one thing that kept occurring was that in my research was that it was the highly polyunsaturated vegetable oils that seemed to be the major drivers of almost of overweight and obesity, chronic disease. And by chronic disease, I mean, diseases like coronary heart disease, stroke, cancer, 
diabetes, metabolic syndrome, Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, autoimmune disorders, the list goes on. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went public with that in 2019. And this is kind of where my uh, where I've been spending the majority of my time over the last five years or six years really is 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 uh, processed foods and vegetable oils and chronic and chronic and overweight obesity and chronic disease. So that's that's basically my story, Nick. Mm -hmm. And so you know when we think about chronic disease, all of the diseases of of modern civilization, the things that we're commonly sick with today that our hunter-gatherer ancestors were almost never sick with, things like obesity, diabetes, uh, different inflammation-driven conditions, you, you know, all the things that you mentioned. Most people, in, in my perception, most people agree that our diet is a big factor in this and that mm -hmm. what's wrong with the diet has something to do with processed foods, whatever exactly those are. But, mm -hmm. you know, I want you to get into sort of your explanation for this. Can you start off by just unpacking this graph here and defining very clearly two terms, uh, at least one is what are ultra processed foods exactly in your view and what are seed oils? Oh, okay. And I didn't realize, I guess we have the graph up there. Yeah. 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 Okay. I, I meant to stop sharing that and come back to sharing it. Sorry about that. But um, so, so processed foods really, um, first of all, are, are, are made up of four basic things, and it's refined flours, refined sugars, vegetable oils, and trans fats. Mm -hmm. And then there's all the, you know, so-called so mystery ingredients, the kind of, um, you know, the, the ingredients that the, the uh, food scientists concoct in order to give flavors and such. And so that would be like artificial sweeteners and colorings and, and stuff yes. like that? Yeah, all those kinds. Kind of things but if you but but i you know i don't know that those those things are the primary problem it's it's the it's those four big components the refined flour sugars vegetable oils and trans fats that are really the main problem and if you go clear back to weston price's research in the 1930s um you, you'll you'll find that um he, he connected the dots between people consuming these foods because they uh, and and chronic disease because these foods are nutrient deficient so price mm. found that um that um the population still consuming their native traditional diets meaning they had no processed foods those those diets contain 10 times more fat soluble vitamins that's basically a d k2 and e um, and four times more water soluble vitamins. That's all the B vitamins and C and one and a half to 60 times more minerals than did the American diets of his day. And in other words, there was already that much, that much processed food. That was in, in the 1930s too, that he was in the 1930s. Right. Okay. And so, um, it's, it's only gotten much worse since mm -hmm. the 1930s, obviously. And so has, you know, our overweight obesity and, and all the chronic disease has ramped up just uh, exponentially. Mm -hmm. So, well, but, so a question there would be: um, if he was making those observations in the 1930s, and the nutrient deficiency in the U food in the U.S. at that time was already that that bad, that nutrient deficient, uh, why didn't the obesity epidemic start in the 1930s? I think it did. Mm. Um, you know, we, but there's no data to support that. But it was increasing, um, and but. 
again, the, the food consumption, the processed food consumption was far lower in the 1930s and all of the evidence points to that. But the main thing that's changed between, you know, the, the, that was relatively pretty low in the 1930s was vegetable oils, the seed oils. Mm -hmm. That was really low. And But if you look at the data beginning in the 19th century, just regarding overweight obesity. So Scott Allen Carson's work on prisoners, men, so men age 18 to 80, um, in the 19th century, their obesity was 1.2%. So if we just use 19, the year 1900 as a starting point, well, the next actual data is, is 1960. And in 1960, our uh, obesity in the United States was 13%. Mm -hmm. So we went from 1.2% in, in 1900 to 13% by 1960. So 1960 is when most researchers think we didn't have a problem, but mm -hmm. clearly mm -hmm. the problem was already there, Nick. It was yeah. just expand. It was just expanding. And, you know, so then, and then others will say, well, you know, the problem began with uh, the, the U S government's recommendation to go low fat in 1980. And that that's when it exploded because it did in 1980, Obesity was only about, was not only, but it was about 14%. And then by 2016, it's 40 or 2018, 42.5% obesity. Yeah, I think, right. uh, so, correct me if I'm wrong, but like one way to sort of think about that is, you know, this is this has been my observation. A lot, a lot of people look at that explosion around 1980, and then they treat like the 60s, the mid 20th century as the baseline. And you can treat it as the baseline if you want to start there, but what you're saying is if you go back to, to 1900 and before, you know, 13% should have been considered a very high obesity rate compared to uh, the deeper history that we have. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, you don't want to use 1960 or 1980 as a baseline. That would be ridiculous because we already had a huge amount of processed foods in the food supply by that point. And um, obviously that's what the people are eating. So if you, you want to go back, you know, with any sort of hypothesis you want to proffer regarding any kind of condition or disease, you want to go back to a time when the, hopefully that disease was extremely rare or didn't exist mm -hmm. and then see what changed. And that's why you need to go clear back like we've done, clear back into the 19th century as far as you can go and, and look at these food consumption patterns in relation to obesity and and all the chronic diseases so that's kind of as you probably know that's really what i that's what i do mm -hmm. um but you yeah. know the the seed oils real quick i'll just mention while we're here that and we i've got graphs i can show and we could look at the data but the seed oils um were really introduced into the united states after right after the american civil war about 1866 mm. and in 1900 they were still um only about one gram a day um 1909 nine grams a day 1960 19 grams a day 2010 80 grams per person per day 80 per day 80 so 80 grams of fat is 720 calories it's yeah. nine calories per gram so that 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 works out to be about 32 percent of u.s caloric intake now there's going to be some losses there 
But, you know, on you're still looking at about a fourth to possibly a third of the American diet is made up of vegetable oils. And those did not exist for almost all of history until mm -hmm. after the American Civil War. Yeah. Now, some, sometimes sometimes you, you use the term seed oils. Sometimes you use the term vegetable oils. Is there a difference there? And is there a preferred name or one that is uh, misleading in some way? Yeah. So the vegetable oils would really be all of the edible oils, essentially, or, you, you know, you, you they basically throw almost all of them into that category. So, so the, um, so if I break that down, you, you can look at the, there's seed oils, really, and then um, fruit oils and tropical oils, I would break those down into. So the seed oils, which are the really highly polyunsaturated ones, the ones that are really high in omega-6, mm -hmm. that would be essentially corn, canola, cottonseed, rapeseed, grapeseed, sunflower, safflower, rice bran, peanut, and sesame oils. Those are the primary so-called seed oils. And then you have the fruit oils, which would be olive oil and avocado oil, and those are much lower in omega-6. And then you have the um, tropical oils, um, which are really palm, palm kernel, and coconut. Mm -hmm. And those are even lower in omega-6. Like the coconut and palm kernel are the lowest out of all of these oils I just mentioned. They're 2% omega-6 linoleic acid, which is linoleic acid is the primary omega-6 fatty acid in any kind of fat. Mm -hmm any kind of natural fat. Um, but anyway, 2% with uh, coconut and palm kernel oils, um, whereas, uh, you know, uh, oils like canola oils around 20%, uh, soybean oils around 56%, safflower oils like 78%. Hmm. So these things, so seed oils, cooking oils, where they are a, a type of vegetable oil, where we have extracted the oil from the seeds of the plant, through industrial processes and the in terms of the, the content of this oil, it's high in omega-6 polyunsaturated fats. Is that a, a fair basic description? That's exactly right. Yeah. And what what are these omega-6 fats and how are they different from other fats? And, and what do we what are some of the key things that we need to know about them uh, as we go through this discussion? Yeah, so there's there's three basic fats. There's um, saturated fat, which has no double bonds. There's monounsaturated fat, which has one double bond. And then there's polyunsaturated fats, which have two or more double bonds. And those would be omega-6 and omega-3 fats. So the omega-6 fats, um, you know, have at least two double bonds and the omega-3s have three double bonds. Um, so the, so the double bonds make those fat, fatty acids, they're called, um, people can just call them fats, but the double bonds make those fatty acids subject to oxidative attack. And so that's what, so they're unstable. The, the more double bonds you have, the more unstable that molecule is. And oxidation is dangerous. So if people want to think about it, you know, oxidation is the equivalent of rusting, like the, the equivalent of metal rusting. Um, and when a fat goes rancid, um, like when you leave fish sitting out and it goes rancid and stinking, that's because those primarily it's omega six, omega three fats that have oxidized, and so they begin to stink. Ah, and so yeah, so that so when you smell fresh fish versus rotten fish, it's I think everyone knows the difference there. Um, one yeah. of them smells very unpleasant, and one of them doesn't. And I, the way that I think about this, 
and, and tell me if this makes sense. So those those fats get oxidized. We naturally perceive old fish as smelling bad. It is aversive. Presumably, we, there's an evolutionary reason for that. Our our senses are telling us don't eat that thing. Right. And so what what is what is actually bad about the oxidized polyunsaturated fats? Well, yeah. So good question, Nick. The the what's bad is the the fact that those the oxidized molecules uh, or when that when those um when those polyunsaturated fats undergo oxidation they end up producing what are called advanced lipid oxidation end products or ales and those advanced lipid oxidation end products are things like 4-hydroxynonenol malondialdehyde carboxyethylpyrrole acrolein uh, 9 and 13 hode, which is hydroxy, octa, deca, dianoic acid. Nobody wants, ever wants to hear that again. Um, and, and there's literally hundreds of others. And that these lipid scientists, um, you know, would name as chemicals, but they don't really have ordinary names like I just gave for the others. But these, but these advanced lipid oxidation end products are very dangerous to consume. They're, they're the equivalent so, so let, let me draw the analogy that they're the equivalent of smoking, uh, of burning tobacco, smoking, mm. in other words. Um, and so when you when you burn tobacco, um, you know, you start off with a, a dried tobacco leaf and you burn it and you end up with more than 6000 chemicals. And inside, you know, from that, you end up with all sorts of mutagens and carcinogens. And right. And everybody knows this. And it's the same thing when fatty acids oxidize, you end up with all these advanced lipid oxidation end products. And um, these are also dangerous, just like the end products of burning tobacco. Um, and so collectively, these advanced lipid oxidation end products are cytotoxic, genotoxic, mutagenic, carcinogenic, atherogenic, thrombogenic, obesogenic, and diabetogenic. So they're so these, uh, you know, this covers the covers the gamut of almost everything that goes wrong in uh, in chronic disease. Now, this is not the only reason but we can and we could talk about oxidation in in more detail, but that's just one of the things that goes wrong when we know when fats oxidize and even before you eat them. But if you when you eat these these fats, Nick, the the omega six fats, well, any any of the polyunsaturated fats, ultimately your body will accumulate these. And what ends up in your cell membranes and inner mitochondrial membranes and in your body fat, for example, um, all of those reflect what you have been eating in terms of the ratios of those fatty acids over the past three years. Mm -hmm. And so, so, it would be nice if we didn't accumulate these omega sixes, but we were meant to because they were they normally in natural foods they they exist in very small quantities, and so we needed you know the omega six linoleic acid and omega three alpha linolenic acid. Those are the two essential fatty acids. We need those for a number of processes, and and so those are called essential fats, mm. but. But with every single thing that we consume, there is a sweet spot essentially for, for that. There's a dose that's appropriate for that. And when you get a high dose of 
omega-6 linoleic acid, it accumulates in your body. And this sets up this, this biological milieu that's ripe for oxidation hmm. and ultimately to, to cause harm within the body. And um, so, so you started to talk about this, but I just want to explicitly uh, lay this out for people. When we consume fatty acids, where are those fat molecules going in our bodies? How much of them, like is some, some of it going to triglycerides that we have as stored body fat? Some of it's going to the phospholipid bilayer of our membranes. Um, are there any other places and, and how much is kind of going to these different areas? Well, I, I, it, um, you're going to, if you don't burn it, mm -hmm. you have to store it mm -hmm. and you're going to store it everywhere that you have fat. So, Cellular membranes, inner mitochondrial membranes, your adipose, in your brain, in your retina, every place that has fat, you will, you will begin to accumulate fatty acids that are reflective of what's in your diet. Mm -hmm. And so that's what sets us up, you know, for disaster. If you consume too many carbohydrates, let, let's say, you know, you, you, you know, when, if you consume um, a huge bolus of carbohydrate, for example, what you'll do is you'll, you'll top off your glycogen stores in your liver and in your muscles. And once those are all full, then you'll need to do something with that extra glycogen, right? That extra carbohydrate. And your body can convert that into fat. In fact, it does all the time. This is why at one point way back, um, in, by the, in the 1920s, researchers thought that we didn't actually need any fat at all in the diet because they knew already by that point that we could convert carbohydrate into fat. Um, and, and, uh, um, but your body preferentially takes those, um, takes those carbohydrates and converts them first into saturated fat and second into monounsaturated fat, but you cannot make the omega-6 linoleic acid or omega-3 alpha linoleic acid, those two, 18 carbon, omega-6 and omega-3 fats, respectively. Um, this is why the, those are essential to the, to the body. Mm -hmm. When, you know, when we look at the diets of traditional hunter gatherers of different kinds, and we look at the ancestral diets that humans had, the things that we were eating before we had obesity epidemics and skyrocketing rates of diabetes and all of this sort of chronic inflammation that we have today, what was, um, what did the fat profile of those diets look like compared to ours? What percentage of their calories were omega-6s, for example? Yeah, that's the really interesting question right there because, and I've looked at this in, at a number of ancestrally living populations. Um, so hunter-gatherers, subsistence agriculturists, and, and horticulturists. And no matter what population you're looking at, whether they're extremely high fat, like the Inuit, which were once called Eskimos, or the extremely low fat diets of like the Papua New Guineans of Tukacinta, or the, you know, the Japanese or the Okinawans, uh, which are again, are a subset of the Japanese. But no matter what, any of, any of these diets, in, if they're ancestral, in other words, they don't have any seed oils, they don't have processed foods, they don't have seed oils, all of those diets are under 2% omega-6 linoleic acid. Less than 2% of calories. 2% of total calories, exactly. And what are we at today? And we're at, by 2008, we're at 11.8% of 
So we were at, um, I, I might have a graph handy here for that, but I'll show you this real, real, real quickly. This is our vegetable oil consumption because this will kind of fall into place. Mm. You can see here that we, for those who can, who are able to see this, at 1865 we had zero vegetable oils in our diet. 1900, this is where we were about one gram of vegetable oils. 1909 we bump up because soybean oil. So first we just had cottonseed oil, and then soybean oil came into the food supply in 1909, and that really bumped up consumption to nine grams a day. Over here by 1960, as I mentioned, we're at 19 grams a day. And by 2010, we're at 80 grams per person per day. And hmm. this is um, so, um, and I'll just mention while we're on this. So in 1900, and we didn't really go through this yet, but this is, that was a time when there was virtually, there was no heart coronary heart disease, essentially. There was no macular degeneration. There had never been a case of Alzheimer's or dementia that so, wasn't syphilis related. Well, I, I want to dwell on this, this for just a second because it's 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 almost like alien to think about this given how how we live today and, and our state of health and disease. When you say in 1900 there was like virtually no coronary artery disease, uh, coronary heart disease, um, right. people you're saying that ba adults were basically not having heart attacks and things like this. They weren't. That's exactly right. Nowhere in the world. There was there was eight, um, there's either eight or nine papers, I, I think it was in the entire 19th century, 1800 to 1900 on coronary heart disease. There was only two of those were on thrombotic coronary heart disease, which is the equivalent of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. um, Sir William Osler, the most fam probably famous physician of all time, um, one of the founding partners of, of Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital, in Baltimore um, reviewed his own personal history in 1897, um, for example, and he had witnessed about a half a dozen cases of angina. He had never witnessed a heart attack. And in 1908, he gave a presentation in London, England, and he had witnessed an additional 208 cases, I think it was, of angina. He'd still never witnessed a heart attack. Um, in 19... Wow. Uh, 1912, um, I think it was 1911 or 1912, um, James Herrick, physician, um, published the first known case of myo myocardial infarction, heart attack in the United States. It was documented with autopsy evidence. Um, nobody even took it seriously for um, until about 1922 um, because they didn't know what heart attacks were. <laughs> um, they didn't know what coronary heart disease was. Yeah, that's just Again, why. I mean, that's just why eight, you have to think about living at a time where, like, no one would have even known what a heart attack was. But like today, you know, everyone knows multiple people in their life that that have. Had yeah, kid, kids know what heart attacks are because yeah. that's how common they are, um, and, and or or at least you know heart disease. They uh, you know kids could could uh, you know uh, vaguely understand that. And um, yeah, but so but by the 1930s, coronary heart disease became the leading cause of death. Um, and in fact, here's here's a, a graph on that. Then you can see there's the red line there with um, those are heart disease deaths. Now that's total. That would include um, uh, the you know given that it's just heart disease deaths. That would include those that are valvular, um, meaning you know coronary heart valve related deaths but you can see that there was uh they were extremely 
unusual back in 1900, any kind of heart disease death, yeah. but exploded over the next century, right? Yeah. And, and, then, and, and then you for, can for see those, that it's it. Go ahead. I was just going to say for those um, that are just listening and, and won't be seeing the the graph here, you know, the vegetable oil line that we're looking at basically you know, a little bit before 1910, early 1900s, you see it kind of go up quite a bit. And that's, as um, Dr. Kenobi said, that's when soybean oil kind of came onto the scene. And then it, it continues rising. But then in about 1960, it goes up steeply again, and then rises like even more quickly to the present day. And you're overlaying the heart disease deaths with that. And these two things are are correlated quite clearly. Right. Yeah. You see this really strong correlation between the vegetable oils and the heart disease deaths up through about, you know, you can see here that after about 1980, heart disease deaths start to drop off. And this is, I, I used to think this was, you know, due to um, bypasses and um, procedures and medicines, but it, it's, I think it's primarily due to the fact that smoking has dropped dramatically, mm. but you can see through the entire century of 19, uh, 1900 to 2020, you can see that, or 2010, as far as the data goes on that, but saturated fat, virtually almost a flat line. Yeah. The Didn't entire, change. the entire period from 1900 to the mid 1900s where heart disease was going up, clearly saturated fat was basically flat the entire time. Yeah. And this is our published uh, uh, graph from uh, a paper in 2017. Um, and so, um, yeah. So you can see there's that saturated fat increased about five grams late, you know, around 2000. It's come up just a little bit, mm -hmm. um, but it, virtually a flat line. So, so I'm going to go back Go ahead, Nick. Okay, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, like, uh, so, so someone could look at this and say, okay, this is a very intriguing correlation. It's a very striking association between heart disease and vegetable oil use in the United States, but it's just a correlation. Are there any randomized control trials or any uh, uh, mechanistic preclinical experiments that tell us how something like omega-6 fats and vegetable oils could cause heart disease? Uh, yeah. So, you know, James DeNicolantonio published a paper um, with one of his colleagues just a few years ago. And um, it's basically about the oxidized linoleic acid hypothesis um, as the primary mechanism of coronary heart disease. And um, that is an excellent paper for, in, you know, anyone to read who's interested in digging into this. But I think it's, you know, to me, it's, it's very clear and simple that, um, I, in my view, coronary heart disease does not exist without vegetable oils. If you look at all of the ancestrally living populations who don't have really any significant heart disease, I mean, they might have rare cases of myocardial infarction, um, but they don't have any significant coronary heart disease and they don't have vegetable oils. And every population that has coronary heart disease, they're consuming vegetable oils. And so, and why, you know, how does this work mechanistically? Well, I think that, you know, in a very, in a very maybe simplified view that it oxidized LDL, low density lipoprotein is what is taken up into, um, arteries uh, to begin and propagate atherosclerotic plaques. And LDL in its native state, meaning when it's unoxidized, is not taken up. 
And so how, you know, how does LDL oxidize? Well, it oxidizes because of the fact that it takes up um, linoleic acid and the, and then, and then that at, again oxidizes because of the fact that it's the, the, of the multiple double bonds and it's very prone to oxidation. And then the, those are rapidly pulled out of the circulation and are deposited into these plaques, which causes this atherosclerotic plaque progression. And so, um, so I, I think it's almost impossible to produce coronary heart disease without vegetable oils. I see. What? So, so you know, it's the oxidation of some of these fatty acids that creates a lot of the problem, and yet. So the omega-6s are essential fatty acids, as are the omega-3s, meaning our body can't produce them naturally. We have to get them from diet. So, so far, we've been talking about some of the, some of the ways that too much omega-6s can be bad. How much do you need and, and what happens if you're deficient in omega-6s going in the other direction? What, is a, what, are, what are they doing that yeah. is essential? Well, how much is essential? Yeah. like What, what is the essential yeah. function that they're actually uh, uh, doing for us? Uh, the essential functions are probably myriad, um, but what we what we see in animals who put on who, who have been put on a one hundred percent fat free diet, and there's been a few humans that were also subject to the same because of in, intravenous feeding or some kind of feeding for, with uh, entirely fat free. Um, diets are almost entirely fat-free, but what happens in animals is is that they um, they they develop rough coats, red eyes, um, deterioration of all of their external surfaces, deterioration of their gut, inability to absorb nutrients properly. So then they become sick, and they uh, they'll they'll eventually they'll die without. Mm-hmm omega-6 and and a small amount of omega-3 fat but so they so we there this is why um um t- the t- uh, researchers burr and burr i can't think of their first names but they were husband and wife way back in the 1920s when back in the time as i mentioned that this was a time when they when researchers felt that uh, we didn't require any fat in our diet whatsoever and they they completely extracted all the fat out of um, out of uh, foods that they put various animals on, mostly rodents, and um, and it's a very complicated process that has to be done in a lab to actually remove all of the fat. Because if you don't remove it all, you'll end up with omega six linoleic acid and omega three alpha linoleic acid in the fat because all natural fats contain it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if it comes from, you know, if you're talking about white rice or oranges or apples, it, they've got fat in all of those have fat and they will contain omega-6 and omega-3. Um, so so we only need a tiny amount. And so Burr and Burr figured out that animals could not survive on a fat-free diet. They become sick and, event, and they would die prematurely. All right, but it takes it takes a while because they, you have to eventually you have to remove you know you you have to use up all of your stored omega six and omega three in your own body before you become severely deficient, right? Mm-hmm. And so it depends on how much you have in your body to begin with. All right, but if you look at and I've got a graph here, um, it, uh, you can see that Americans in eighteen sixty five we modeled their omega six consumption. They were at about 2.4 grams of omega-6 linoleic acid per day 
and um, um, that's about 1.1% of calories. But animals and even humans don't need more than about 0.5%. And there's been an argument made um, by um, ancestral researchers that um, we need only as little as about 0.35% omega-6 linoleic acid. Because so, so that's what, that's so what, what hunter-gatherers are consuming. Yeah. Okay, so what you're saying is uh, hunter-gatherers are estimated to uh, to consume never more than 2%, and we probably only need at most 0.5% of our calories to come from these omega-6s. That's right. We might need a little bit more than 0.5% as infants, um, and, and, uh, but, but after, um, after infancy, uh, probably no one needs more than, um, 0.5%. Mm-hmm. And we certainly don't need uh, anything above about 1.6 to 2% is excess. And as I mentioned early on, you know, there's a, a, a sweet spot there's a optimal consumption of every single nutrient there is, you know, water, oxygen, iron, copper, molybdenum, you name it, they all are, they need to be consumed at a, an appropriate dose. Yeah, and not too much, too not much, too little. Exactly. Exactly. Either way is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so if, and if we go back to this graph, you can see that, again, we were at 1.1% omega-6 in 1865 when we didn't have any chronic disease. And in 1909, that had doubled to 2.23% or two point, it gone from 2.4 grams. That I'm sorry, that should say 4.8 grams. That's a misprint there. Um, by 1999, 1999, you can see we we're at 7.21% of our diet is omega-6 or 18 grams a day. In 2008, 11.8% of our diet is omega-6 and 29 grams a day. And you can, you, if you, you know, overlay our obesity, our coronary heart disease, our cancer, um, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, Alzheimer's, dementia, macular degeneration, all of them are intimately related mm-hmm. to this right here. They're related to the seed oil consumption and to the yeah. omega-6 consumption. Um, I want to ask you something about this graph. Um, it's triggering me about something uh, else that, that I've been researching. So for those just listening, right, we're looking at the, the percentage of calories that come from omega-6 fatty acids over time. And you know, you go you go back to the 1800s um and and forward to the present and it's just a line going up and to the right. But at about 1999, right at the turn of the millennium, that goes up even faster. So the slope of the graph gets much steeper. What's interesting about this to me, uh Dr. Kenobi, and I'd love your take on this is I know that from about 99-2000 to present, um our total caloric intake wasn't really rising anymore. We were no longer consuming more total calories. And in fact, um, you know, some of our, nutri- our our total fat consumption and I think our carb consumption, you know, either plateaued or even started to drop off around this time. And yet, we know that the obesity epidemic kept getting worse. And so, do you think that this is a, a key piece of that puzzle there? That even though we weren't continuing to eat more after two thousand, we were continuing to eat uh, more seed oils. Yeah, that's exactly right, Nick. And I've got graphs on that too, but I can, um, most of this is in my memory. And this is, these are key points that you're bringing up. Um, And you're exactly right. Right around 1999 or 2000, 
um, caloric consumption started to just slightly decline, whether you look at total, total calories available or and or calories consumed began to decline at right around 2000. Again, while obesity was obesity was uh, I forget what it was, 30, um, 30 some percent in 1999. Um, I think it was 31%. And then we're at 2018 were at 42 and a half percent right but the but the calories didn't go up yeah and the and if you think well but it was the sugar no the um after 2000 either 1999 or 2004 right in there depending on two slightly different data sets um sugar has been on the decline in the united states and um so again sugar on the decline while obesity goes through the roof and diabetes going through the roof by the way mm. and um and then you say well it's the carbohydrates well carbohydrates at least from 1997 through 2013 declined also mm. so you have total calories carbohydrates and sugar all declining while obesity and diabetes go even Mm-hmm. at a more vertical ascent. Yeah. Well, that's, and, what, and what this do you think is going, true in other nations too. Yeah. What, what do you think is going on there mechanistically? So if, if diabetes is insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes is insulin resistance, insulin goes up after blood sugar goes up and blood sugar goes up after we eat carbohydrates. So if carb intake did not continue rising, but diabetes did continue rising, how, how can we explain that? Oh, I can explain it easy. Um, so... So for those who want to investigate further, I I went over the pathway um, between oxidation and insulin resistance in a presentation I gave at the Ancestral Health Symposium in 2019, which was at the University of California, San Diego. And um, basically what, and I'm going to keep this pretty simple and you can, you if you want me to get more in depth, I can, but I think it's really difficult for people just listening. But in a nutshell, when you consume high omega-6, you damage these molecules called cardiolipin, which are key players inside the inner mitochondrial membrane. And that inner mitochondrial membrane has to hold a proton gradient. The protons are hydrogen ions. And so that that inner mitochondrial membrane, the way it produces energy is you pump these hydrogen protons inside the membrane and it builds up a gradient. And so when that when they so that has power and when those hydrogen protons come back through the the membrane, they go through ATP synthase. That's the final step in the electron transport pathway. And when they come through there, that that converts ADP, adenosine diphosphate, to ATP, adenosine triphosphate, ATP, the energy currency of the cell. And so, but what happens when you have a, consume a high omega-6 diet is it damages that cardiolipin, causes the membrane to become leaky um, and or changes the curvature of it. And that causes failure of that membrane. It allows for one thing, those protons to leak out of the inner mitochondrial matrix and um and therefore you cannot produce energy Hmm. and then the very next thing that happens is um 
that you increase the reactive oxygen species and that causes the cell to become sick. The, the, the cell then becomes insulin resistant. It's the very next step. And if you think the, the cell is a microcosm of the entire body. So when the cell becomes insulin resistant, the entire body becomes insulin resistant. And this is exactly why it's not about carbohydrates and it's not about sugar. Uh, sugar may cause this in extraordinary doses to some degree, but it takes like the, the doses they're using are like 60% of the diet. It's insane. It makes no sense. There's no nobody in the world consuming that much sugar. Um, but anyway, so so you can you can explain all of this, or at least I can, I believe, through a high omega-6 diet. All you need, you don't need any sugar and you don't need high carbohydrates. All you need is substantial vegetable oils and you will drive mitochondrial dysfunction, which is what I'm talking about through oxidation. <laughs> and you will drive insulin resistance, which will cause your blood sugar to go up. And it doesn't matter what your macronutrient ratios are. That's irrelevant. Hmm. Is there is there preclinical evidence demonstrating that, that if you have a, a very high omega-6 diet that you can cause insulin resistance without well, changing? It's all in animals. Yeah, yep. They, yep. They answer, in animals, they absolutely have proven that. And, and I reviewed that in those studies. And this is why they see... You, there's a num there's a, several studies in very good studies in animals where they gave the animals isocaloric diets, and all they varied was one thing: omega six linoleic acid. Everything mm -hmm. else was kept equivalent: calories, fat, carbohydrates, sugar, or even no sugar, zero sugar. And the animals given the nineteen percent soybean oil diet, for example become massive, you know, which even on, again, same calories as the, the rodents given chow, which is mm -hmm. like 1% omega-6 linoleic acid versus the rodents giving, given 19% soybean oil, which is about 11% uh, omega-6 linoleic acid. And, and in fact, lower than typical Americans, yeah. those rodents on that diet, the high omega-6, they become massively obese, hmm. but there's only one difference. And even when they yeah. have zero sugar, zero sugar yeah they become morbidly obese um it's the equivalent that in in a, uh, i think it was eight months time that they be they become the equivalent of a um 277 pound male versus the rodents on chow would be the equivalent of a 170 pound man mm -hmm. this is the so, difference yeah. so you're saying you're saying basically researchers have a bunch of different groups of mice each one gets a different diet. They all have the same number of calories. They're all eating the same number of calories each day, but they're just varying the, the fat profile and the macronutrient profile of these diets. You're saying that the mice who get the high soybean oil diet, which is giving them high omega-6 fats at roughly the levels that you know a lot of Americans are eating today, those mice get obese and they get sick compared to the other mice, even though the other mice are eating the exact same total amount of calories. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so a key thing here is, um, is mitochondrial function. The mitochondria are the little organ organelles in our cells that create the energy, the ATP molecules that power everything. And if you mess with their ability to do that, the cell is just going to basically get sick in almost any way you can think of because it's not going to be able to effectively and uh, efficiently produce its energy. Is that a fair kind of summarize uh, summary of that? Yeah. That is perfect, Nick. And, and by, so, the, 
by the way, I should have told you this at the beginning. I'm sorry, but but you but please call me Chris. No, I don't let anybody call me doctor. So <laughs> I forgot right. to mention that, Nick. All right, no worries, Chris. Um, what about what is the connection between omega-6 fatty acids like linoleic acid and inflammation? Why do people say that the omega-6s cause inflammation? What's going on biochemically there? Yeah, they do. Um, that's another. So there's really, I always, I tell people that there's, um, there, there's, there's basically four pathways through which high omega-6 diets drive um, overweight, obesity, and chronic disease. And it's that they are highly the, the seed oils are highly pro-oxidative, pro-inflammatory, directly toxic, which we've already talked about that, that through the advanced lipid oxidation in products, and then they're nutrient deficient. They don't contain vitamins A, D, and K2 um, like you would get in traditional animal fats like lard, butter, and beef tallow. So, so in terms of the pro, you know, omega-6 is being pro-inflammatory, um, they absolutely are. And, you know, before I describe that, which um, basically everybody agrees with this, nobody even argues that at all, that the omega-6s are pro-inflammatory. But, um, um, but, but I want to just put this into perspective. The oxidation that we were talking about, I think, is tenfold, maybe a hundredfold more dangerous than the inflammation. Oxidation mm. is incredibly damaging to the body. And this is some, it's much harder to understand, um, which we just talked about what it does to the mitochondria, for example, um, and how it leads to devastation and mitochondrial dysfunction, which could lead to obesity and diabetes and, um, and cancer. But, um, but so, but you have the inflammatory pathway too. Well, so how do we get there? So omega-6 linoleic acid is, is an 18-carbon fat that is converted by elongase and desaturase enzymes into 20-carbon arachidonic acid. Mm -hmm. And that arachidonic acid then can, gives rise to um, inflammatory prostaglandins, eicosanoids, leukotrienes, and thromboxanes. Mm -hmm. These are collectively vasoconstrictive, inflammatory, um, and cause clotting. All right. So, so vasoconstrictive means you're going to have higher blood pressure when those things go up. Infl inf inf inflammation is inflammation. I think everyone kind of has a sense for what that is. And then they're also clotting factors. Yes. Yeah. And so you, so you're, in other words, you're putting yourself at risk that day when you consume vegetable oils for a heart attack and stroke that day. And this is one thing that we and we can get into this, you know, uh, about recovery from vegetable oils, but but you, you put yourself at risk, you know, right away when you consume vegetable oils for these reasons. And then the, you know, just on the flip side, the omega threes, then they um, they're the opposite. They're they're you know the the omega three alpha linolenic acid, and then the downstream metabolites, the longer chain omega threes. Um, EPA and DHA, 20 and 22 carbons, respectively, um, those eventually, they give rise to, um, um, in, in, you know, anti-inflammatory uh, uh, prostaglandins, uh, maricins, prote protectins, maricins, um, uh, and so they're ultimately, um, they prevent vasoconstriction, or, you know, or they'll produce vasodilation. 
they um, they pre they prevent inflammation or reverse it, and they are anti clotting essentially. Mm -hmm. So so they have the really the opposite effect. And this is where this is just like this is boilerplate stuff in pathophysiology. Everybody knows that these are you know well accepted mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So so I, I have a question for you, which is this. You know, basically, after everything that we've just talked about, you just you just gave us a, a nice crash course in omega sixes versus omega threes. As you just said, like everybody knows this stuff. Who's you know who studied this area of of biology? Why, if I go if but if I go to the grocery store, I will see all sorts of bags, all sorts of boxes that have the American Heart Association's heart healthy stamp of approval on them for the specific reason that they contain what they call heart healthy polyunsaturated fats what is the, they can't just be making this up out of nowhere why is it that the AMA is calling these things heart healthy if what you're telling us is basically the opposite for one reason they lower cholesterol and that's it and i i i've, I've you know started with this early on in in a number of my presentations that that um yeah the the american medical association um um harvard school of public health tufts university nutrition department mayo clinics nutrition department cleveland clinic american heart association on and on all recommend seed oils and they all recommend them because they improve they in quote prove and i'll put this in i should put this in single quotes improve our cholesterol, meaning they lower our cholesterol. And um, so, so they, they therefore are deemed as good. Well, guess what, you know, um, uh, anything that's highly pro-oxidative um, will, or not anything, but a number of things that are pro-oxidative will also lower your cholesterol. But so the, the, as, I'm, as we talked about early on, when your LDL cholesterol oxidizes, it's taken up out of the bloodstream into the vascular wall. And the reason that it is probably is because when the LDL is oxidized, it's extremely dangerous. And so those are rapidly removed from the blood. And that, so it does potentially lower your cholesterol. Now, it may also be that some of the LDL that is oxidized is still there, but it doesn't measure as normal LDL either. Um, because when it's oxidized, it looks different in terms of you know, the testing. So it may also to some degree still be there and yet it's just not being measured properly as I understand it because mm -hmm. of the fact that it is oxidized. Yeah. Based on everything I know and I've learned, you know, over the past few years about metabolism, about cholesterol, about the history of, of medicine. A fair summary of what many people, including you, I think would say is the the standard story that we've been told about the relationship between cardiovascular disease and cholesterol is wrong, or at the very least, um, very lacking in the appropriate level of nuance. And it's simply not true that lowering your cholesterol is going to be good for everyone all the time. Is that accurate? And if so, why why is the story persisting with such vigor? Um, you know, uh, because orthodox allopathic medicine 
and I was trained in their institute, you know, in their institutions. I, I'm a graduate of University of Colorado School of Medicine, um, which is an allopathic school of medicine, of course, and um, traditional medical school. Um, the, you know, they they have been they have been you know supporting this theory, this hypothesis or belief system that that you know cholesterol itself drives coronary heart disease. And so it just needs to be lower. And of course, the research shows over and over. And I, I think this gets to be, a you know, to me, a boring topic, Nick, but because I just I feel like we've, you know, we've gone over and over and over this. But but no matter how low you make the cholesterol, you can't prevent coronary heart disease if the if that if those if that LDL is oxidized. Mm-hmm. So they're missing the main point of, of you know, the fact that. What, you know, why is it so hard for them to look at this and just see that, you know, all of these ancestrally living populations, whether it's the Inuit who consumed almost, you know, who are almost carnivores, or whether you look at Papua New Guineans of Tukacenta who were consuming almost nothing but sweet potatoes, or you look at South Pacific Islanders who live off of fish, starchy tubers, fruit, uh, and, and fruit mostly, um, and, co- and coconut and the, the half of their diet, coconut and on and on all these diets that don't contain vegetable oils, they don't have heart disease. Right. And, and, you know, typically their, their, their cholesterol levels are really, they're pretty low. Um, just like the Maasai warriors of Kenya and Tanzania, they, you know, they were shown out their, their cholesterol is pretty low. I think it's, you know, I, I forget the numbers, but it's under 200. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's 160 or 180 or something like that is what it was when George Mann studied them back in 1972. And everybody's scratching their head. How can they consume 66% of their diet as animal fat and have no heart disease? Mm-hmm. Um, I, no, n- at least no coronary heart disease that ends in uh, heart attack or congestive heart failure, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but it's, you know, to me, it's just very simple. They don't have vegetable oils. They don't they have a very low omega-6 diet. And so they don't have oxidized LDL. And in and one of the reasons, one of the things that people are not really talking much about that I think is the main reason our cholesterol can end up so high is, is one thing, and it's copper deficiency. Hmm. And James DeNicolantonio um, reviewed this in his book. I think it's called The Mineral Fix. It's a really big book, but 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 uh, it's a great resource. And um, our diets are really low in copper um, if you're not consuming um, some of the things that are high in copper. And there's not very many things, but it includes um, liver, um, lentils, some some beans and chocolate and those are some of the few things that contain significant copper and i know a fair bit about this because i was copper deficient myself and had very high cholesterol like 300 to 500 hmm. um co- wow, correct that's very my, high yeah and it'd been like that says going clear back to when i was in my early 30s and you know um and it corrected only with one thing I, and i have zero coronary heart disease when i have a coronary artery calcium scan in 2020 and it was is zero it had no calcium plaque whatsoever. Was, were your doctors uh, shocked when they saw that knowing what your cholesterol well i don't go like? to i don't go to doctors oh how did how did you i mean <laughs> not not for that anyway yeah yeah no i just ordered my own anybody oh. can 
order their own coronary artery calcium scan and go in and have it there that you can get them here in Denver for like a hundred dollars. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, be, and uh, so they're, they're, they're very inexpensive and a really good thing to do, but yeah. So I, I'm a perfect case. Why would my total cholesterol average three eighty or something like that, you know, for 25, 30 years. And yet I have absolutely zero coronary artery disease. Well, um, for one thing, I, we, you know, we always cooked our own food and I didn't use vegetable oils. I didn't know what I was doing most of that time until 2011, but, but I wasn't using vegetable oils. And, um, I, and I think this is the reason why, but I was copper deficient. So for, so if people will, um, consume copper rich foods, um, for a period of time and, and you need, you might want to measure your copper, but it's, but it, you know, I didn't mean to go down this pathway so much, Nick, but just since we're on the subject, but, mm -hmm. but if you raise your, if you're low in copper and you raise your copper, I can almost guarantee you your cholesterol will not, will normalize. Interesting. So a uh, quick question for you before we move on to a different subject. Um, you presumably weren't concerned about, uh, you know, having a heart attack or anything like that when you, uh, noticed that your cholesterol levels were that high. Um, but what, what, what was concerning you? Why did you want to look into bringing them down? Um, I really wasn't trying to bring it down. I didn't actually, um, didn't actually know for sure the, uh, about uh, any of this. It was, I just began to consume uh, more liver for other reasons. And mm. liver is a really good source of copper. Whereas Whereas um, muscle meat, like hamburger and steak, for example, and chicken and fish, all that, they're very low in copper. I see. So the muscle meats are low in copper, um, and um, but organ meat, well, at least liver, is high in copper. So let me let me let me put this another way. So the muscle meats are high in zinc and iron mm -hmm. and low in copper. And liver is high in copper and low in zinc and iron. Mm. And interestingly, zinc and possibly iron, but zinc is a strong competitor for absorption with copper in the gut. And so if you consume a lot of zinc and copper together, or if you take zinc supplements or just zinc rich foods, you can further deplete your copper. Oh, and that's, and this is a, I think is a, huge reason that we're so we have so much high cholesterol uh, this doesn't have anything to do with oxidation of cholesterol right this is a separate subject mm -hmm. um but this is why i think we have very high uh a lot of very high cholesterol levels and people you know a lot of people who go on they go on a, a meat rich diet um particularly when they go low carb for example they, their cholesterol goes through the roof and there's all this speculation about uh, what it is. And I think it's primarily just that they eliminated a lot of the foods that are there where they were getting their copper. In I fact, so so not only, yeah, not only are they not getting that copper if they're not eating things like liver, but the, the ingestion of, of that food is high in zinc. And you're saying that's going to competitively inhibit the absorption of copper. That's exactly right. Interesting. Interesting. And I guess, yeah, the, the, the instinct most people would have there is to say that that type of diet is going to increase cholesterol uh, to, because you're getting more saturated fat or something. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, a, there's a component of that, but I think it's mild compared to the copper issue because 
people, you know, people have gone, a, a, I, I know so many cases like this, it's a lot of anecdote, but there's research behind this as well. But but when people go low carb, for example, a lot of times they, again, they, they think that they're, cholesterol is going through the roof because of saturated fat, just as you said, but they've eliminated, let's say a lot of things in the plant world where they were getting the copper that they were getting. For example, like, you know, almost, I think it's almost half of the copper that's being consumed in the United States is coming from chocolate, hmm. almost half. And um, so if you go low carb, people eliminate chocolate, right? Yeah, that's probably yeah, yeah. one of the things that they're going to eliminate. And because they're eliminating that because of the, the because it's usually going to have sugar with it. Hmm. Um, and so this, they're eliminating a potential good source of copper there. Interesting. This is completely coincidental because I didn't know about this copper thing that you've, you've just been telling me about, but um, I've got a bag of like organic, you know, cacao powder and hmm. You know, several days a week, I, I stirred into some milk and hot water, and I, you know, I just have like a little hot chocolate. Um, and I, I had noticed when I bought it that it had a lot of copper in it, and you don't see copper in a lot of nutrition labels. So uh, I didn't really look into it; it was just a curiosity. But uh, this is this is an interesting coincidence. Yeah, that's a great. That's a it's a great source of copper. Yeah, the, by by far the best source is beef liver, or you know, it, I mean, other there. I'm sure other ruminant livers. Mm -hmm. are probably high as well but the, the common one would be beef liver what um what kind of diet do you eat and and is there anything that that you're really aiming for beyond uh say the, the elimination or the minimization of the omega-6 fatty acids yeah so i you know I, I eat and recommend an ancestral diet and that just means that i've eliminated processed foods i just don't consume any really hardly any processed food um, I certainly don't eat any vegetable oils of any type, actually. I don't even consume. Now, if I were to consume any, it would be, you know, be coconut oil or maybe a little bit of a little bit of olive oil. But um, but those are those are key for me. Um, so I actually over the last uh, I mean, my diet has changed a lot over the last 12 years, but currently um, I've reduced my amount of protein. I've dropped, you know, my total meat consumption down to maybe 12 ounces, 10 or 12 ounces a day and increased my, the, the foods from the plant world. So I'm on what many would probably think of as a high carb diet, but it's probably around 40, 45% carbohydrate, um, uh, th maybe 30% fat or less. Um, and the rest protein. So, um, but, but I consume, um, I consume, um, lots of plantains, uh, sweet potatoes, potatoes, some rice, um, some pasta, lots of fruits, um, apples, oranges, uh, strawberries, berries, blueberries, um, and then a, a number of fermented foods, you know, sauerkraut, kimchi, um, you know, yogurt, uh, kefir. Um, those are the things. And, I'll, you know, so so basically that that's basically what my diet is like currently. Hmm. And so um, I, I, with an eye towards thinking about 
um, reducing omega-6 intake and uh, uh, getting some of those uh, fatty acids out of the body. Let's say that you know, you're, you're the typical American today and you're eating something like a 20 to 1 ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids. And let's just say that, that you snap your fingers and uh, you get it down to a one-to-one ratio or something close to that. Yeah. How long would it actually take the body to, uh, to adapt to that for its fatty acid composition to reflect that new ratio of omega-6 to omega-3s? Yeah, three years. Three years. Three years, yeah. So the, um, the half-life of fatty acids in the body is um, 600 to 680 days and the, so roughly two years for the half-life. Um, but interestingly, one uh, study firmly showed that you could turn over all of your, your body fat, fatty acids in three years. Um, this is in humans, of course. Um, so, so for somebody, you know, our, our diet should be less than 2% omega-6 linoleic acid. And that, and that would produce there. We haven't gotten into this so much, but you're, but you're, again, as we talked about, it's reflective of the amount of omega-6 linoleic acid in your body fat. And that would produce, and there's four studies that show this only four all done in 1969 by Ian Pryor and colleagues in, in the South Pacific. Um, so these four populations had their body fat analyzed and they were on completely ancestral diets and their body fat averaged 2.82% omega-6 linoleic acid. Americans were at 9.1% omega-6 linoleic acid in 1959. We were at 21.5% omega-6 linoleic acid. Again, this is now is in our body fat, hmm. right? So, so this is our body fat. So it should be 2.8% roughly. We were at 9.1% in 1960, 1959. We're at 21.5% in 2008, right? I just want to make this really clear. So we want to be back to 2.8%, but our half-life is two years, and we can turn over all of our fatty acids in three years. So if you go on a completely, you get rid of all vegetable oils, and you consume you know, only low omega-6 foods, which we haven't gone into all that yet, but there's more to that. But so you you can be back down to your, you know, theoretically back down to 2.8% omega-6 linoleic acid in your body fat in three years. Hmm. So that's kind of maybe good news, bad news, depending on how you look at it. It's not going to happen overnight, but but you'll get there. Mm-hmm. And you will realize that you'll gradually realize all the benefits of a low omega-6 diet over that time. And the only thing I know people say, well, is there any way to speed up this process? And the only way I know would be, you know, I would say potentially this might be a a reason to consider a lower fat, higher, higher carbohydrate diet and then exercise. Yeah. You're ultimately going to need to burn, burn the omega six, um, use it for fuel essentially to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let, let's talk about this more. How do people get there? How do people get closer to a balanced ratio of omega-6 and omega-3s and not over-consume these omega-6s? Yeah. And, you know, uh, the, the whole theory about balancing, it won't work. It, it won't help you at all, in my view, or almost not at all, just to increase your omega-3 
which could theoretically balance your omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. That won't yeah. solve the problem because you still are going to have a body full of omega-6 fat, uh, right? Yeah. And this you, have is- to, you have to get there. You have to get to that balance ratio by bringing the omega-6s down. Exactly. And, and you know, not being omega-3 deficient, but, but you can't just bring up the omega-3 super high. Right. So the way you get there is, is you've got to just, I would say, in, in one sentence, you have to prepare your own food without vegetable oils, you know, and make your 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 fats, your added fats, primarily animal fat, like you know, like butter, beef tallow, ghee, whatever. But it you know it should be animals and animals animal fats. And this is what we hadn't talked about yet is that the animals need to have themselves have been consuming an ancestral diet, which means that that animals that are monogastric, which would be like pigs and chickens, those animals will develop a very high omega-6 in their body fat, just like humans, because we don't have multi-compartment stomachs that can hydrogenate the polyunsaturated fats into saturated and monounsaturated fats. Cows, cattle, ungulates, ruminants, whatever you want to call them, they have a multi-compartment stomach one of those stomachs can convert the omega-6 into monounsaturated and saturated fats, and they therefore have a very low body fat omega-6, no matter what they're eating. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so, so ruminants like cows are just intrinsically different in their metabolic capabilities than things like chickens and uh, pigs. So they will almost always have a much lower omega-6 content, but the, the diet of the animal is going to reflect... The, co- the fat content of the animal is going to reflect the diet of the animal. So if you're buying chickens that are fed corn, they're going to have high omega-6 content. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're just like, they're, they'll be just like humans. If they're, if they're fed a high omega-6 diet, they're going to have high omega-6 in their body fat. And then we consume those and we're going to elevate our omega-6 in our body fat. And there's a similar mechanism behind consuming nuts. So nuts and seeds are high in omega-6. Um, and, uh, so nuts and nut oils are, except for macadamia nuts and macadamia nut oil, that's the only one in the nut in the, in all of the nuts that's low in omega six, all the others are high. And so the, the, those three things, so the, so the seed oils, the, um, even some of the fruit, you know, even you might consider, uh, olive oil and and avocado oil they're a little bit higher in omega-6 and then of course you've got monogastric animals if you're consuming those that are consuming corn and soy so again we're talking about pigs and chickens that consume corn and soy that will drive up your omega-6 and then consuming nuts and seeds will drive up your omega-6 so I, you need to get all of those corrected and then your omega-6 will really start dropping and it'll drop i think it'll drop precipitously in a few months and you know people people just start noticing all kinds of health benefits when they do this so what is what is your relationship to nuts you know nuts that don't have added vegetable oils to them but do have natural omega-6 content well they're incredibly better than um you know consuming nuts of any type would be incredibly better than consuming the highly polyunsaturated vegetable oils because they're not processed in a factory that would, you know, ultimately drive those, the, the, the development of those advanced lipid oxidation end products before you ever even eat them. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you wouldn't have that issue, but I'm convinced that, that it, you know, 
Um, people who consume most of their fat in the form of nuts, I've seen some disastrous health outcomes with those people. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think it's mostly because of the high omega six, but they're also, you know, and we've really never got into this too much, but, and nuts don't have nuts and vegetables. None of those have the fat soluble vitamins, A, D and K2, which you would get in beef tallow or beef fat, or even to some degree, pork fat, Mm -hmm. you know, so you're missing those two. If you're not if you're just, you know, you're trying to get your fat from nuts, for example, that's a that's a dangerous proposition mm-hmm. in, in terms of a diet. One final area before we run out of time that I want to get you talking about is uh, the brain and and maybe we can we can get there by talking about the eyes because that's your specialty um, as an ophthalmologist. What happens um, to our vision and our eyes and to our brains if we have too much omega six in the diet? Well, I think it's this, I think in a nutshell, um, I'm kind of on the spot here, Nick, because it's kind of, kind of how we started out that I, I'm, I'm stumped as to where to go with this because there's, there's so much to tell. Um, but I, I wanted to say that the most important consideration is to keep your mitochondria healthy. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, we do that through an ancestral diet, period. And that means no vegetable oils and essentially no sugar, no refined flours, which means that your diet is not only nutrient dense, you know, it has all the vitamins and minerals that you need, but it also doesn't have the toxic components. And so, you know, I think that if, if we could just draw some big parallels between the brain and the eye or the retina um, they're, they're all subject to the same insults in terms of oxidative attack and lack of nutrition, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, in the eye, in the retina, um, one of the most important things that happens when people consume seed oils, I believe, is probably damage to the mitochondria that ultimately causes destruction of the retinal pigment epithelium, which is what supports the retina proper, the rods and cones. And so when you actually see the the retinal pigment epithelium or the called the RPE, you actually see at what we what you know we ophthalmologists would call atrophy of that layer. Um, and when you see RPE, we see we see that we call it RPE dropout or atrophy. And um, um, when you lose each RPE cell supports about 30 photoreceptors, rods and cones. And so when, when one RPE cell dies, 30 photoreceptors die with it. And neither of these are regenerative. They don't come back. Right. And so this is one of the main, main pathways to macular degeneration is this right here. Now there's many other pathways that, I don't know that we should try to get into all that. That's detail that probably almost no one wants to hear, but, but, um, um, but I think that, but, and, and, and there, there's, there must be, you know, very similar pathways uh, in the, in the brain itself. Um, but that's not my, that's definitely not my area of expertise, but, you know, interestingly, if we just talked about Alzheimer's for a moment. Um, so um, Alois Alzheimer, the, 
physician diagnosed um, the first case of what was eventually called Alzheimer's disease in 1908. And then I think there was another four cases diagnosed in 1910 or 1911. And then, you know, by the 1940s, there was several hundred cases. And, you know, today there's, you know, in, as of about 2020, I think there was 55 million cases of either Alzheimer's or dementia in the world and, and another 10 million cases per year. Uh, um, added this, this is a new case of Alzheimer's or dementia every three seconds. Um, but you know, the, the, the one thing that's our genetics haven't changed, right. And they've not changed at all in a century. Um, but what's changed drastically is our diet. And the main thing that's changed is the vegetable oils. Hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, I was just, um, I was reading a paper by Bob Lustig and some other people and they go over the concept of obesogens. And what they did was they compared and contrast various different models that people have used to explain how metabolic dysfunction and things like diabetes, the diabetes and, and obesity arise. And, you know, there's the energy, energy balance molecule, which basically just says the more calories you eat, the bigger you're going to get energy and energy out. There's the carbohydrate insulin model, which is the, the classic model of how things like carbohydrates and sugars raise insulin levels and cause insulin resistance. And they sort of say that they don't really like those two models very much. And they have uh, a model that combines the obesogen model. And an obesogen is just things that we eat, which cause metabolic problems. And then there's the, um, the, the sort of reduction oxidation model. And basically what they come to is they say, we think that uh, a lot of the metabolic problems we're having today is that we're eating obesogens that are having their obesogenic effect in large part through changing things like uh, the levels of oxidative, oxidative stress that, that our cells are exposed to. And if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, it sounds at least directionally like you would, you would have basically that viewpoint. Um, well, our, well, yeah, I guess the, well, again, I would say that the, the primary obesogen would be the, would be seed oils. That would be it, you know, and, you know, there's a lot of concern about all, all about a, many other obesogens um, and, and every, everything from, you know, stress, lack of sleep, um, you know, anti, or I'm, I'm sorry, you know, ver various uh, endocrine disruptors, for example, like plastics. Yep. Right. And, um, but interestingly, Five, the top five most obese and diabetic nations in the world are all South Pacific Island countries. And these countries, hmm. we were just down there uh, evaluating their food supply. I'm going to stop this screen share if that's okay. We can hmm. come back to it anytime. But, um, but, we, but we were just there in October and November, um, rather, you know, evaluating the food supply and some ancestrally living populations down there. But but for example, what we found in Samoa, which is I think about number two or three, the most obese and diabetic nation in the world, their, their total obesity, overweight and obesity is about 90%. Um, and diabetes is almost 30% in adults. Um, so it's just outrageously high. And what we discovered was that 
they're they're consuming our oils primarily. They're they're you know their their traditional oil or food was it was coconut oil. Mm-hmm. Most of their much of their diet came from coconuts, and they would make coconut cream. They didn't actually make the oil, um, but but the coconut cream is where you get all the coconut fat. That's the coconut oil, right? It just hasn't been removed directly from the cream. But anyway. Um, so they're, they're consuming our oils like our soybean and, and canola oil and safflower oil primarily instead of coconut oil, because we've told them Americans, you know, and they've been listening to our science that, that they shouldn't be consuming coconut oil because it's high in saturated fat. Yep. And that'll raise your cholesterol. So it all yep. goes back to that, that all goes one, back one to thing. that, that yeah. belief system and and so, and they bought into this hook, line, and sinker. And to this day, the, the grocers down there even told us that the rich people buy, they are the ones that primarily buy uh, the the uh, the canola and soybean oil. Hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're the ones that want that the most. <laughs> it's more expensive than the other oils, but they've been told it's better, right? So um, I forgot how I got onto that, Nick, but... Yeah, we were, I mean, you, you were just talking about the most obese populations, and uh, oh yeah, back to yeah. yeah, the obesogens. So, so oh, I know, I know why I got why I mentioned that is because these islands are pretty darn pristine in, in terms, terms of the, the plastic, the plastics and things. Yeah, like that. yeah, I yeah. think in terms of the the things that we think, you know, in terms of the environment, pollutants, and yeah, all this, and of course, you know, there I don't know about their stress or their sleep or whatever, yeah. but. But you know, but those other things are probably lower than they are for us, and they're even more obese. They're yes, yeah, they're even more obese than America. So if you look at only developed nations, United States is the most obese nation nation in the world. But if you look at all nations, you know, developed and and developing, it's the the Pacific Islands that are the top five most obese and diabetic. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. interesting. And you know, I, I guess the yeah the 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 drivers of the supply of these things are pretty clear. I would think to most people, right? Like we've just devoted a lot of agriculture to creating these crops that can be used to basically cheaply make these things. And so there's a pretty straight arrow you can drive uh, in terms of uh, the supply to the demand. And because it's so, it makes foods so cheap and convenient to consume because we can process them and package them in boxes and wrappers and and yeah. on the go stuff you know, that, that's, these things have just become pervasive and they're, they're in virtually everything. Yeah. They're ubiquitous. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take too much uh, more of your time, Chris. Um, is there anything that you want to reiterate that we talked about or anything um, you want to point people to that maybe uh, they can go to, to read more or that will teach them about something we didn't really have time to get into on this general subject of, of seed oils and omega sixes and general metabolic health? Yes, thanks for asking. Um, so for those who can see this, this is our new book, uh, my new book. Um, I have a co-author, um, Suzanne Alexander, but it's called The Ancestral Diet Revolution. Um, and uh, this came out, back out in uh, last summer. And um, this book reviews basically everything that we've talked about today, but in much greater detail or something like 80 graphs that that in the in the book, most of which I produced along with uh, colleagues, and um, so it's 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 uh, it's it's science, but it's very readable, and the pictures really the the, the graphs and the 
uh, tables really drive the point home. We do have social media. I don't handle that. Um, Suzanne Alexander does, but so we have, um, you know, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, now known as X, right? Um, and we have a, you know, so I work for two nonprofit foundations, Cure AMD Foundation, that's for macular degeneration, and Ancestral Health Foundation. Um, the latter does not have a website yet, um, but these are the nonprofit organizations that we work for. So we, so um, the, th those are the places that people can go to, um, to look for more, but, um, but yeah, the, uh, it's a shameless plug on the book because we don't earn any income from that at all. That income, the royalties from that book go directly into the foundations. And from that, that just supports operations and research. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't earn anything from working in this field. I'm just here because, uh, because I believe in this mission. All right. Well, Dr. Chris Kenobi, uh, thanks again for your time. This was uh, really important. Thanks so much, Nick. I really appreciate it. take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen and it's a handheld pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters, to get $50 off your Lumen device today.